Good morning, family. Good morning. We're going to uh, open the Word together this morning. So if you have need of a Bible, if you don't want to use your phone, maybe you didn't bring yours, maybe you don't have one. If you need one, there's some ushers are in the aisles now. They're coming. Uh, they're coming down. If you uh, if you need to borrow one for the morning, or if you need a Bible, please just throw up a hand. Um, this is our gift to you. If you don't have one, um, and if, if you do, and you just need to borrow one for the morning, go ahead and and uh, set it in the back table uh, as uh, as you leave today. Okay. Uh, so go ahead and and uh, open with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. Um, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come, some of us tired, some of us excited, some of us um, stressed, some of us relaxed. We come in, um, in, in just different places, yet needing you, longing for you. Uh, so God, help us uh, not just to, to hear the word, but to catch it to let it transform us and shape us, that we would be new, that we would be who you have called us to be, that we would be your body, your bride, your temple, your church, that the world would know that you are God because of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2. Can we take me out of the monitor? Sorry. Sorry. Test one, two. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Ephesians chapter two, we're coming again uh, to the book of Ephesians, and, right? We've been in uh, 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter one, uh, or we've been in 1 Timothy for a couple of weeks, uh, which is Paul's letter to the church planted in Ephesus. And we're here in our second week in Ephesians, uh, uh, which is Paul's letter to the church planted. And last week, we saw Paul's powerful declaration of praise, um, his powerful declaration of praise that God had chosen us, not just chosen us, but adopted us into his family, redeemed us from sin and death, made us inheritors with Christ of his kingdom, and in this, he's declared that it is God who saves us, right? Simple truth. God has saved us. Now, we haven't saved ourselves, but God has saved us. Out of the riches of his love and mercy. Here in chapter 2, Paul's going to take that, that praise that he started and walk us into well, what we've been saved from, which we've heard already this morning, the, the word has been read. What we've been saved from, how we participate in that salvation, and what we were saved to. If that, if that makes sense. What we've been saved to. And I think that, that might be a little bit unexpected where Paul's going to take us um, as we get into it. So, Right, let's jump right in. Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, the rest of humankind. So Paul wastes no time here getting into the like, critical theological issues that lay the foundation not only for his letter and the application that we're going to see more and more in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but the very theological foundations that are core to us as believers and how we live. And he's setting up the problem. The problem is, and he says to the Ephesians, and I think he would say to us as well, we were dead. You were dead. I was dead. You were dead. All, all, all y'all were dead. Yeah, okay, physically alive, but spiritually Morally, ethically, dead. Then Paul goes on to explain the significance of it. And his, his, his explanation is way bigger than like, I think even I expected. I think we're all familiar with at least a couple of, of, of verses here in, in Ephesians 2. But his description of our deadness transcends just the me. Does that make sense? We're Americans, or we live in America at least, and we love the individual. We love the self, right? Paul's coming from a really different culture. We're going to talk a lot about we this week. But he's going to see us, and he's going to plant us, church, in a much grander story than just me. So he says, you were dead. All y'all were dead. We were dead. And because we're sinners, we transgress God's law, we violate God's design for creation, we were not living loyal to the wisdom and command of our creator, of our God, who is creator and king. Instead, we followed the course of the world, the trajectory, the GPS of the world, which Paul here is assuming has been marred by, corrupted by sin and death, right? Adam and Eve violated God's, God's command and plunged all of creation into sin and death. Think Romans 1. In that, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, there's a weird phrase, right? The prince of the power of the air. I don't think you've referred to the prince of the power of the air this week in conversation. Have you? Anybody? No? Okay. Um, what's up with that? Well, according to Aristotle, Aristotle's understanding of the universe said that the spirit realm, the spirits, dwelled in what we would call maybe like the atmosphere. He described it as the space between Earth and the moon. Now, again, he's not speaking in what we would call scientific language. Um, but that's the way he imagined the world, that there, the spirits, what we would describe as like angels and demons, dwelled here in that space between Earth and moon. And it would seem that uh, other ancients like Plutarch and Diogenes agreed with him. 
So likely what we have here is Paul, just in common language, saying, look, all y'all, in your sinfulness, you followed Satan and his demons. Maybe you didn't know it, but that's the course of life of the unbeliever. Now, often we get from like horror movies this idea that being involved with demons or Satan is this like really like gross and terrifying thing, really obvious thing. But we know, hopefully, that Satan's a whole lot more subtle and more chill than that. He doesn't want to be recognized. He wants to be subtle. And so in our sinfulness, we followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his demons. Um, for they rule, in some way, Paul is going to over and over again in the New Testament describe this present age um, uh, as, as both dominated by sin and death, that this, uh, this present age is evil. And so in being unbelievers, Paul descri then describes them as the sons of disobedience, the, we might say, maybe like sons of Satan. And granted, that seems harsh, but Paul's just laying it, he's laying it all out. This is your situation. You're dead. You are in sons of disobedience and inheritors of death. Following this path, non-believers, and in particular here, Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, feel the like ethnic tension there. It's going to be huge in the rest of this passage and in much of the New Testament. Followed, you Gentiles, you non-believers, you followed lusts and passions of your mind, of your flesh, of your heart. And look, that seemed normal to them. Right? We gotta, we gotta remember this. Maybe if you've been in the church a while, maybe we look at what the rest of the world is doing and go, how, how do you think that's okay? Like, of course, of course that's what they think. They don't have the word. They don't have the spirit, right? That was us. At some point in our lives, whether we grew up in the church or not, that was us running headlong into death. We thought it was great. <laughs> How often do we think our sinful ideas are great? Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? Now, I wish I was more of an artist. Y'all like Hamilton? You, 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 okay. I was late to the party. I saw it only a couple years ago on, on Disney Plus. Then like was obsessed with the album. Just deep dive with me for a second. If you, if you don't know Hamilton, just drift off, think about something else. You know Guns and Ships, right? Right, like I need Lin-Manuel Miranda in here to like help me like sing chapter two. Because right, verses one through four, like ought to be sang by Burr, right? We're dead, trespasses, sins, once walked, sons of disobedience, prince of the power of the air, like it's bad. And then verse four, Lafayette shows up, right? But God, the whole song changes. And I can't, I can't even, I can't even sing Lafayette's part along with the album. I'm not even gonna try to do that. Okay. Stay in your lane, Swanson. All right. But feel the weight of it, right? But God. But God, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy 
because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated. Listen to this. Seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in that. Amen. We're saved by God's mercy and grace. Hear that again. If you've heard it for a thousand times, hear it again. God's motivation maybe seeming passe to us because we're so used to it, was, I think, still shocking to them that their patron, that their king, that their um, lord and master would love them. Showed mercy and grace because of his great love. He reiterates in this that we were, again, dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Knowing, like, so, 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 So hear it, Easter morning, the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and all who believe in him are alive with him. Now we're waiting. We're not fully there yet, but that's that's where the faith part comes, right? We get to be alive with him. Death is not final. Life is coming. New life is coming. We get to share in that resurrection life if we trust in him. Paul here, again, sort of reiterates what we saw in chapter one. Not only are we alive with him, we have been chosen by him, adopted, redeemed, and made inheritors of Christ's kingdom. And this is where, again, it gets bigger. It gets bigger than we expect. It's not just about, like, saving my soul. No, no, no. God is seeking to put his kindness on display that in the age to come, all creation would see his goodness. All creation would see his grace. All creation would see his kindness and marvel. It's bigger than me. Our salvation then is part of something far larger, far great, uh, of some far larger, far greater cosmic plan of God to put his glory on display. And we participate by faith. And we often define faith uh, as belief, which is fine. But we also see in the New Testament that it carries this idea of trust and this idea of loyalty. But make no mistake, salvation by faith is nothing new. Paul here in chapter 2 is going to allude to, like, well, like the rest of the Bible. As I prepared, I had trouble like, wait, how do I not preach the whole Bible in chapter two? Um, I know we're flexible on time, but we don't have that much time. In Romans, right, Paul 
Brexit is open, wide open. Who is our model? Who started salvation by faith? Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 6. In uh, uh, Ab- uh, Abraham believed, he believed the promise of God. He had faith in God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In like manner, all of us who believe in Christ Jesus will be saved. While Abraham looked ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of his Redeemer, God, who would fulfill the promise, we look back at God's accomplished work on the cross and look forward to his return to bring all things together in unity, in his peace, in his shalom, that heaven and earth would, uh, would be made new. Now notice, it's going to give us a hint at what we're called to. So we're saved from sin and death. We participate in that salvation by faith. And then he says this, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So here Paul, Paul's seeking to, I think, connect us and connect the Ephesian believers to a much larger story. We like to think maybe, maybe that like belief in Jesus frees us from all other responsibility, right? Oh, we're free. We, we, got our, we got our get out of jail free card. Now I'm going to go do what I want. Right? We struggle with this as Americans, right? Like the Americans should, like we struggle with this to, to express like that, what the freedom from slavery to sin and death that, that Jesus has purchased us. Maybe we miss that, that that faith is then loyalty and adoption and inheritance into a new family and a new kingdom, which comes with, as it should, right, responsibility and community. We so long for independence, maybe an independence that we were never really meant to have. We, I think our culture pushes us to be overly dependent on the self. And Paul here over the next few weeks is going to push back at that. He's going to push us back, push us back. We're never alone. We have a father and a king and a redeemer who loves us. And he's, going to, and he's calling us to good works. And again, like in our, in our fear of, um, in our fear of legalism, maybe even this term good works makes us a little antsy. We can't talk about good works. No, 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 no. Remember, how are we created? We were created to be in his image, right? We are created to be in his image. Why, why did God say uh, Israel don't have any idols? Think about this. Why do you say don't, don't carve images of me? Could an image show us what? Could a, could a statue show us what God is like? No. Whose responsibility is that? It's mine. It's yours. It's ours. Can a statue do justice? Oh, can you? Yeah. Can a statue love? 
Can you? Can a, can a statue show mercy? Can you? Right. God created us that the, the creation would know who he was because of us. And we screwed it up. We rebelled. But Jesus, Paul is saying to us, look, look, your faith in Jesus fills you with his Holy Spirit, gives us a community that we can get back to that work. That we can get back to that work. That we can prepare. We can prepare for the coming of our Lord. Right? Think, oh man, all those parables, Paul and Thessalonians, right? Like, know when the master's coming. We have a job to do. We got we to gotta promote. He's coming. Let's get ready. He says, you have a good work to do. You have a good work. We were created for this work. This isn't burdensome. This is what we were designed to do. It's not burdensome to drive a car. That's what it was made for. He says, oh, you, Paul says, you have a work, a good work, which he designed for you from the very beginning. And when you put your faith in Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit, oh, now it's on. Now we're ready. We're ready. Like, you know, I, I never played football, uh, but you, you, know, you strap on the pads, you put on the helmet, you're ready. Rest of the world, they're out there trying to play in, like, in, you know, in running shorts. It's not going to go well for them. We're free in Christ to be what we've always been created to be. And that's good. In our, in our fear, in our hesitation to, uh, in our fear of legalism, we cannot miss the thing that God has called us to do. In our desire for independence and sort of personal expression, we cannot abandon the community and purpose and design that God has created for us. Verse 11, 11 and 12. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision uh, by, what, uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without, uh, and without God in the world. Now, this, these two sentences are huge. Um, and, and I think maybe there's a temptation for us to just skip over them. Because Paul's going to dig in here. He, he's really alluding to the whole letter to the Galatians and big swaths of Romans, right? You Gentiles, you weren't, you weren't, uh, you weren't circumcised. You weren't a part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Jews were. And we got we to figure out how that's going to work together. We might be tempted to skip over that. But, but, but look, saints, do we have problems with division in the church today? Yeah, we do. Do we have ethnic problems? Yeah, we do. So we got to... We gotta, we got to get our heads around what's going on here so that we can hear from Paul, from the Lord. What's his purpose for us? Right? What is this good? Like, this is part of that good work that he has called to, that good work that he has created us for. So what's happening? Paul is describing um, 
how God saves us, what he saves us from. And here he, we're, we're digging into that, that, uh, that issue of what he's saving us to. Um, so in their world, in Ephesus, in this like, young church, you had two groups, you, at, at least two groups, right? You had Jews who grew up knowing the word of God, knowing God. Maybe they were saved, maybe they weren't. And then you had Gentiles, most of which didn't grow up around the word of God, didn't know, didn't know who God was, didn't know any, like, and there, there exists among them hostility. Makes sense? There's, um, and the hostility went both ways. And there was, and we don't have time to get into the whole history, but there was a group of Jews that was reaching out to Gentiles at that time, like pre-Paul. There's a, there's a, if you read Acts, if you read Acts 19 as a part of your, your homework this last week, you may have come across this phrase, God-fearers, Gentiles who believed in the God of the Jews but hadn't fully become Jewish yet. And then, so it, it's complex. It's complex. But um, God had commanded Abraham. So let's go, back, let's go back to Genesis for a minute. God commanded Abraham um, that, his, that he and his sons should be circumcised. So this becomes like a this becomes a foundational piece of um, this becomes a foundational command for all the people of God from Abraham, give or take two thousand BC, onward. Now it's interesting. He says, uh, Paul, uh, Paul's going to say, you don't need to worry about being circumcised anymore. It's like, well, what's that about? In fact, he sort of he sort of throws shade at it, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. So what is circumcision? symbolize. Ask your doctor if you want to know what circumcision is. Um, what does it symbolize? <laughs> I was like, you're not going to talk about that, are you? No. So biblical circumcision is the, and, and catch this, covenant oath sign of the Abrahamic covenant. What's a covenant oath sign? A symbol or symbolic act which signifies the signing of a contract. Does that make sense? So, like, I'm married. I have a wedding ring. That's a symbol that I'm a part of a marriage covenant. Does that make sense? That's, that's maybe, like, the easiest one in our culture. We don't do this a lot. But these were everywhere in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, and, and a part of their covenant-making practice is that they would, uh, they would do some sort of symbolic act or have some sort of symbol that represented that a covenant had been signed. And many of these covenant, these, these signs, these symbols of the covenant were what we, uh, would, are what we would call self-maledictory. That's, that's a big, weird term. Meaning that the symbol represented the harm or the punishment that would come upon you if you violated the contract. Does that make sense? Anyone, do, anyone on the, like, the playground as kids do the like cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye sort of promise thing? Yeah, you guys remember that? Um, that that's weirdly like a self-maledictory oath, right? Um, I, or like pinky swear, right? Like if you, if you isn't, wasn't pinky swearing, like if you violated your promise, you'd, you, you could break your pinky? Isn't that what that was? Anyway, why as kids we do this? I don't know. Um, so this was really common. In fact, to sign a covenant, literally in, in the Hebrew, was to cut a covenant. Because often what they would do, and this is in fact like, uh, this becomes so important. Um, uh, they would take an animal and they would cut it in half. And they would let the blood pool. 
And then the participants in the covenant would in the contract would walk through the blood to say, if I violate my end of the deal, you can do that to me. And and look, this this happened in, in marriages, it happened in business agreements, and if the and you know if the if if the the groom you know was a, a, an abusive alcoholic cheat, don't think that the that the um that the uncles and brothers and father of the bride aren't going to come down, drag him into a canyon, slit his throat, and, and you'd find him and footprints in his blood. They were serious. They took these things real serious. Maybe we should think about how seriously we take marriage in our culture. Now, that's gruesome, but look, this is exactly what God promises us, isn't it? I see some of you nodding. You, you know. Genesis 15, right? Back to Abraham. God promises, God makes big promises to Abraham. I like to summarize it in four Ps. Four Ps, right? God promises Abraham provision. He promises Abraham protection. He promises him progeny, children, and property. So God says, I'm going to be, uh, I'm your shield, Abraham. I'm going to protect you. I'm your reward. I'm your provider, your patron, your benefactor. I'm going to provide for, for your needs and the needs of your, uh, of your offspring after you. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you're going to have children. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you're going to inherit the land of Canaan. And Abraham's like, you know I'm old, right? we're old. We're going to have kids. How, how do I know? Like he asks, look, he asks that. He says that like in faith, right? God doesn't rebuke him. He says, God, how do I know? And God goes, I got you. Bring me a, a cow, a goat, a lamb, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Abraham's like, oh, I know what this is about. And I'm a little terrified. And he takes those animals and cuts them in half. He lets the blood pool and he waits. And who walks through the blood? God does. Does Abraham? Now, Abraham's very much aware, like, ooh, if I stick my big toe in this blood, I'm a dead man. Because whatever God's going to ask me to do, I can't do it. I'm a sinner. God walks through the blood to say, look, Abraham, if I take your provision, protection, progeny, or property from you, my life is forfeit. And maybe you're thinking like my students often do, but God can't die. Wait for it, right? So here in Genesis 15, God's made this massive promise. He's promised on his very life to give Abraham these things. And then God comes to Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, Abraham, you, you got to sign this covenant too. Abraham, um, I want you to walk before me, to walk with me, and be blameless. He also earlier had told him to, well, go to the land of Canaan, which he had, and to be a blessing. Be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. He wants Abraham to be loyal to him. We might say blameless, like sinless. Well, okay, maybe. But also, like, remember, like, the whole Old Testament, the whole, like, Torah, the whole law of God is predicated on the reality that Israel is going to fail to obey the commands perfectly, right? Which is a whole system of repentance. Be repentant, be blameless when you follow me. And so he says, look, Abraham, how you're going to do this is you and your sons and all the, all the, the men in your household are going to be circumcised. That's how you're going to sign the covenant with me. That's how you're going to show you trust and believe in me. And all the guys are like, ouch. Um, 
and this was this was a sort of a common thing in their world. So from that time on, boys, eight days old, eight, uh, after eight days, were circumcised to show that they were members of God's covenant community, which then came with responsibilities. And what God does in the rest of the Torah, in the rest of the Mosaic covenant, and he explains, well, Abraham, Abraham's descendants, what does it mean to be, to be blameless? What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be loyal to me, God? Here's, and the traditional number is 600, here's 613 commandments. This is how you do it. Saints, how'd they do? That didn't go so well, did it? In fact, after some ups and downs, God had to break out the curses that he had promised at the end of Deuteronomy, right? He said, look, you're faithful. This is the good things that are going to come to you. You rebelled. This is the bad things. And so God, God conquered them. He used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer them, and he took away uh, their provision. He took away their protection. He took away their progeny. He took away their property. Not in full, but in large measure, so that even God's people, as we're coming up to Christ, right, even God's people lay under a curse. Non-believers, they're cursed. They're cursed by sin and, and under sin and death. Now God's people also under the curse. And what's the only thing that can break that curse? Who has to die? Who walked through the blood? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Come on now. <laughs> Do I need to go back and explain it again? No. God's got to. So fast forward. Here's Paul going city to city, planting churches, declaring, look, Gentiles, you don't need to become Jewish to be saved. He says to, he says to his people, his, his Jewish people, brothers, your hard work and your perseverance and faith, it's not enough. You need Jesus. And God is doing something new. He's seeking to bring us together. See, the awkward truth is that, is that Israel, while being near to God, and, and we'll, uh, Paul's going to describe those who were near to God. He's going to describe those who were far from God, Jews and Gentiles, hadn't actually trusted him. Many, some had, but many hadn't. They didn't actually follow him, even though they were big on doing the commandments. Does that make sense? And so both Jews and Gentiles needed salvation in Jesus. This is the radical mystery of the gospel. That God is going to create a new people, a Jew plus Gentile people, a multi-ethnic people that are going to like bring his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not going to be just Israel. And now, saints, we're used to that. But this was a seismic shift for them, right? It's a seismic shift. I, maybe, maybe, like, maybe like a third-party candidate winning the presidency, right? Like, we just can't imagine it. Maybe we imagine it, but we can't, like, 
just won't work. Paul's, uh, what Paul is saying is of enormous significance to them. Now, he says something interesting here, and I think it's, it's, it's going to mark where he's going. He's, gonna, he's speaking to Gentiles. We see that he's speaking to Gentiles, but he's going to make some very, very like telling comments about God's people, the Jews. He says, he says um, sorry, back up, verse, um, verse 11. He says, you were called uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, which is made by hands. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, of course, like, like all human actions, it's done by human hands. But made by human hands is one of Paul's ways of like throwing shade at the idol makers. Or you worship Artemis, that image made by human hands. It's really strange that he would then refer to circum- circumcision this way. But I think it, it, it's marking something that, uh, uh, it's, it's marking a reality that had come up in Judaism and a reality that we also have to be careful of. I think it's marking that for the Jewish people, their external identity, the things they did that set them apart from the outside world had become for them an idol. Does that make sense? Their external piety, even in those things like circumcision, which were commanded by God, had become for them an idol that actually cut them off from God. Does that make sense? Here's what he says uh, in verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who who were once far off, think Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. For Jesus is our peace, um, our shalom, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And by abolishing the law of uh, of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God uh, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, think Gentiles, and those who were near, think Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in him, and in whom, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So we're just letting Paul do the work here, right? So often we assume that salvation is about bringing us to heaven. But for in Ephesians, 
always arguing that salvation is giving us right here, right now, a new community, a new family, a new people, a new kingdom, a new national identity. See, the law, the law of God, had become for the Jews and and the Gentiles, again, the hostility goes both ways, a dividing wall between Jews and Greeks. And this represented, uh, 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 so God had called, think Exodus 19, God had called Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy means set apart. So God's, God's going to give, he's giving them all sorts of commands that they should stand out both morally and ritually, that they would be different so that they could be a nation of priests, meaning that their purpose as a nation was to call the other nations to worship God. They were to represent the nations to God and God to the nations. But Paul is arguing here that in their time, in their world, that those commands, both moral and ritual, had become a means of God's people cutting themselves off from the other nations. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but growing up in youth group in the early 2000s, I think that this was, this was a temptation, right? I can't, I, I, I can't listen to their music. Like, they do this. I can't hang out with them. I've got to cut myself. Like, I've got to, like, I, we're, we're going to go into the youth group. We're going to close the doors and not let anybody in or out. It's a temptation for us as, as, as the church, right? And they're bad. I don't, want to, I don't want to hang with them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want, like, look how good we are. But you're missing the goal. You're missing the point. The point, look, I struggle, I struggle with this, saints. The point is to call the nations to worship. It's to, it's to, it's to live different as a beacon of hope that the nations would be brought in. Not to, like, have my little holy huddle right? My favorite football team has a quarterback that, uh, that puts up great stats. People are like, see, he's great. It's like, dude, we got eight wins. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Who cares what his fantasy stats are? That's not the point. This is not why we play. Who cares how righteous we are, how right we are? Our righteousness and rightness isn't functioning as a beacon of hope and, a, and an expression of love to the nations. Makes sense. We got we to remember the goal of the game, right? It's not a game. It's way more important than that. So we must not let our righteousness piety, any sort of external markers, right? Any any identity, whether ethnic or cultural or otherwise, become a barrier of hostility, keeping people out of the church. Does that make sense? Right. 
picking up in verse 15. That he might create in himself. Oh, wait. Sorry. We'll let that go. <laughs> that, he create, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, uh, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In the temple in Jerusalem, this is, this is illustrated. If you remember the temple, there's the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, which only the priests can go. Then there's the priest court, which again is for the priests. And then there's the court of the Israelites, which was for Israelite men. And then there's the court of the women, which was for Israelite women. So all these areas are just for the, like, the, the cultural, ethnic people of God. Does that make sense? And then there's the Gentile court. It's furthest away. And Paul says, I'm going to take, uh, Paul says, in Christ, having been crucified, that dividing wall, and there was literally a wall in the temple said, if Gentiles pass this point, their life is forfeit. Like, they're, they're going to be executed because they've defiled the temple. They're not, they're not Jewish. They're not part of God's people. Even if they're believing, even if they're believing, even if they're worshiping God, in, under the old covenant, if you hadn't become a, a, a full-fledged Israelite um, by circumcision or, or, or what have you, um, you, you couldn't go in. So Paul says, no, 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 look, here's the mystery of the gospel. God's tearing down that wall. We'll pick this up at the end, right? Are we putting up walls? Think about it. As a church, are we, put, are we trying to put those walls back up? Because we can look at history and we can see, man, there have been times where we have put walls back up in the church, haven't we? We'll come back to that. So Paul is saying, look, guys, the law, it had become a dividing wall for us. God's law, God's Torah, the, the Mosaic Covenant, it had become a dividing wall. Like, where, like, Gentiles hated us Jews for it, and we Jews hated them right back. And the mystery of the gospel is that God is not content with, with taking you and you and you as individuals. God wants, and in fact, God's like, purpose in the gospel is to bring all of us together into one new people. He might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the Jew-Gentile split in order to bring peace. And that word peace here isn't just the absence of hostility, but it's like it's, it's, it's right flourishing life. Does that make sense? When it says peace in the Bible, it's talking about like God's peace, like, the, like, like everything is right, like Eden before the fall like the new Jerusalem, like God's goal is to call us uh, to a salvation, yes, that, that we might uh, join him in heaven, but that we might become a new people in Christ. God is calling us not to an individual salvation, but to a new family, a new community. In Christ, all ethnic divisions are torn down to create one new people. And it would seem that this is not only a result of Christ bringing us into right relationship with God, but actually an essential part of it. 
In Christ, there is peace between Jews and Gentiles, creating peace that both might be, uh, that both might be reconciled to God in one community. But notice what he says here at the end. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Again, adoption language. And then he's going to flip the metaphor. And this is, this is so cool. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So saints, look, we're not, we're not just a church, we're not just Christians, we're not just saved to heaven. No, 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 like, this is one of, uh, Paul uses this metaphor, Peter uses this metaphor, I bet John does too, and I'm just missing it somewhere. We're together the temple of God, right? You know the verse in 1 uh, Corinthians 6, right? Well, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you, uh, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, we got to remember, this is, not a, uh, this is not a diet verse or a physical fitness. Well, I work out because my body is a temple. Hold on, right? Paul's whole, like Paul's whole thing in Corinthians. Do you remember? The church is Christ's body. It's his body. The ear cannot say to the eye, I don't have need of you. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. You're Christ's body. Christ's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Peter makes it a little clearer for us. He's going he's gonna to round out the image for us. 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 and 5. As you come to him, you are, a, uh, uh, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, i.e., as Paul puts it, the cornerstone. You, all y'all, you yourselves are like living stones being built into God's spiritual house, into uh, being built up as a spiritual house, being a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices uh, uh, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So Paul says, no, 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 it's not that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. You're a stone and you're a stone and you're a stone and you're a stone and I'm a stone. And we together constitute the temple in which the Holy Spirit is going to dwell. Does that make sense? Now, this is dramatic in Paul's time because he's, he's hearing Jesus. I think we often miss it. Where's the temple for, where was the temple for them? In Jerusalem. What was going to happen to it? It's going to be destroyed. In fact, 
think if we look at Acts 2, the, apostles, the disciples, they're, they're in the temple. It says the house. It's the Hebrew way of talking about the temple. They're in the house. It's Shavuot. It's Pentecost. It's one of the high holy days. Right? They're worshiping. And the Spirit of God appears. But where had the Spirit of God been? Where did it dwell? Where was the, where was the special residence of the Spirit of God? In the Holy of Holies, in the temple. But what had happened 50 days before? What had happened to the Holy of Holies? The veil had been torn. And fire appeared from where? It doesn't say. I think, it I think it comes out of the Holy of Holies and rests on his people. I don't know if it's one of the, one of the most incredible buildings ever built. God's like, no, 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 I don't want to live there. I want to live in you. Saints, that good work that we have to do is building God's holy, uh, God's holy temple. It's reestablishing shalom. It's reestablishing the goodness, the rightness, the order that God had always meant that we would be his image bearers, now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when we, we, we have this struggle, well, then what do we do with the law? What do we do with the Old Testament? Saints, like, it's not burdensome. So much of, as, as we look at that through Christ, this is just the way the world works. This is an expression of God's design that we can take up joyfully in obedience to Jesus, our Father, our King, our Lord, our Creator, our Patron, our, our brother who shares his inheritance with us. We live in a culture, we live in a nation whose history is full of, even in the history of the church, building up walls of division and hostility. So saints, like from Paul, be affirmed and challenged that the the, the strife we have between peoples and ethnicities in our, in our culture, in our, in our community, in our nation, is not a distraction from the gospel. It's part and parcel to it. That when God's kingdom comes and God's will be, is done, people of all tribes and tongues and nations gather and worship the true king. And it's that love across boundaries that used to exist that is an essential part of that beacon of hope that we're called to be as his image bearers. And so this is the hard work, right? It's when we don't agree. It's when we don't um, do everything the same, when we have differences and disagreements, that's where the real love begins, isn't it? That's where the real love begins. When we agree, when we're, when we're all alike and, and, and everything's going smoothly and we never have any disagreements, that, that's not love, that's easy. The real love is when it gets hard. And that's the love that God calls us into. That's the love he empowers us to use by his Holy Spirit. That we wouldn't see ourselves as an end in and of itself, but we're just bricks 
We're just stones, right? And God's like, I want my temple bigger. I want it more beautiful. Add to it. And so, saints, as we come together now to, to, to renew our covenant as a church, we're not only renewing like our covenant to like as individuals to Jesus, but we're renewing our commitment to one another. That together, we were always meant to do this together, that we would be faithful, that we would put God on display, and that we would do so in faith and trust and loyalty that the world would know that he is God because of us. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us to be faithful, to do your will, to trust in Jesus, not only for how to live, but for the strength to do it. So God, we thank you and praise you that your son loved us so much that he shed his blood, that we might be adopted into his family, that he might share, that he might share his inheritance with us, adopted, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, into your family and your kingdom. So God, may we be faithful. May we stop tearing down your temple and build it bigger and more beautiful that the world would know that you are God because of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.